Good morning, Mercer Island Covenant Church. I hope that you're feeling good this morning. It's a great privilege to be here. Thank you, Pastor Peter, for the honor of being able to, to stand at this pulpit and to be a messenger of God's word today. Um, it's actually been since the end of October or so that our family has been attending here with you. So it, it hasn't been all that long because I, I feel a little guilty. There's so many of you that we haven't yet met. Um, we've enjoyed getting to know you and participating in some of the church activities here. We were here for the costume festival and uh, participated in some of the Christmas events. And In fact, I was here for the annual Women's Christmas Brunch. And I was absolutely blown away. I love that kind of stuff. I came in and was wowed by the table settings, the spectacular arrangements, the centerpieces, the favors. You, you left no detail undone. The gentlemen that were serving us were so attentive and the hostesses so gracious. It was actually a, a really beautiful um, and wonderful time to come and to meet some of you even more then. That morning, we were treated to some entertainment by two women who performed a variety of skits and songs. Some of them were humorous, and others were a little bit more poignant. And there was one in particular that struck me on a more personal note, and I suspect it struck Pastor Julie, too, because it has a lot to do with what we were talking about with the kids this morning. They were two women who acted as if they were agents inside the brain of a particular person. It's like they were the ones who, were, who operate inside and, and dictate what you're going to do. And they were giddy and beside themselves with excitement because the new year was upon them. And they had this blank calendar to work with. They thought, wow, there's no commitments yet, no responsibilities, it's a fresh start. And they were high-fiving and celebrating and thinking, look at this, this is so great. It's almost like we don't want the year to start, we just want to enjoy this beautiful blank calendar page. You know, it seems a little bit ridiculous, don't you think, that we get so excited about this arbitrary date. I mean, nothing's really going to change Wednesday morning, when you wake up, is anything substantially going to be different? Is anything really going to change from the year before? It's in ink. You can't do anything about it. But even though I know that, I have to admit, I'm looking forward to it. I'm so excited about the new year, I have been waiting for 2013 to start. This has been a very difficult year for me personally. I've had to endure a number of significant and personal losses and there's just something about the fact that a new year is about to begin that I feel like I'm going to get a fresh start. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's at times like these that we tend to become more self-reflective. We want to consider what changes can we make. Of course, we always want to be growing. So we, we think, we evaluate, we make resolutions. What could we be doing to be better? And it's at these times of, of year when we are probably just a little bit more motivated than usual, right? I have to admit, in the last couple of weeks, I've given at least some fleeting thought to eating better, <laughs> exercising more, and trying to steward my money more wisely. But I know that I have to be careful, because you know what my tendency is? My tendency is to go from pursuing a few healthy goals to wanting to absolutely change my life in every single area and be perfect. It's like, I can't just say, yeah, I'm going to start eating better. 
I have to fail it. Oh, I gotta be up on current events. I better start reading news better. Pollution is a huge problem. I need to start walking. I need to compost. I need to volunteer. I need to read more. I need to call my grandparents more. I need to X, Y, Z, Z, Z. You're just like, this is my chance. I need to start fresh. I'm motivated. And you start to think all of a sudden, there's all this stuff I need to do to make myself better. And it's okay. We start out okay generally. But if we're simply counting on willpower, forget about it. We're not going to last long. Eventually, I end up feeling defeated, hopeless, angry, depressed. And then I just quit trying altogether, right? Before you know it, I'm self-medicating again on Ben and Jerry's and trips to the mall. I suspect this is what happens to a lot of people. And that's why so many New Year's resolutions are short-lived. What I'd like to say this morning to you as well as to myself is that real change is possible. Real lasting change. There is such a thing as a clean slate. And it is possible to have a new start. But it doesn't come about as the result of our own effort. To experience genuine newness We need Jesus. We have to have faith in his ability to do work in us, not our own efforts trying to create change. And this is what we learn from our text today. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it helps to know that the Bible is not a book necessarily meant to be read from cover to cover, but it's one story comprised of many different books. And there are a variety of genres of literature represented in these books And my favorite to read are what we call the narratives. In fact, just as a little aside, I'll debunk the current Asian stereotypes. Pastor Peter's not an anomaly. I, too, did not graduate with a degree in math or sciences, but I was a literature major. (laughs) Studied Spanish in complet. One way that I've found to more deeply engage with the stories of the Bible is to use my imagination to really try and picture in my mind what's happening. And imagine not only the sights, but consider the sounds. Think about the smells. This particular story in Mark 5, it's great for this. So if you're new at entering the scriptures this way, I invite you to practice. Think about this story like a movie, because it opens just like one. Okay. Imagine that there's some dramatic music playing, and we start off with this aerial view of the Sea of Galilee. So all of a sudden, you know, we just we know that we're getting settled in our seats, getting shifted in the popcorn around, right? You hear the music, you see the landscape around the Sea of Galilee. Then all of a sudden the title appears, and then one by one, the name of the key actors that are going to be in the movie. Then the camera shot, shot starts to narrow in even more. And our interest heightens, we kind of sit up, we know the story is about to begin. And as it gets closer, the the aerial view of the sea kind of starts to focus in and to narrow in on the shore. And we see that there's a large crowd gathered there. And there are some men disembarking from a boat. And the music starts to fade, and all of a sudden we hear the noise of the people that are gathered there. There are lots of people, all ages, crowded together, sick people, demon-possessed people, babies who are crying. The camera zooms in even more. And all of a sudden we begin to focus on a distinguished-looking man who is obviously distraught. He has a desperate and panicked look on his face. And there are a few attendants accompanying him, helping to push his way through the crowd. And then all of a sudden, he stumbles out. 
And he's before Jesus on his knees. And he says, Jesus. And he starts to plead with him and tell him, my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Please come to my house. Put your hands on her that she might live. And Jesus agrees. And he starts to make their way and the crowd begins to follow them. Now we know from the text that this man is an important religious leader. And while Capernaum isn't a huge place, he is certainly known there. It's reasonable to assume that they knew that this was the man whose name was Jairus. And as they're en route to Jairus' home, a woman approaches Jesus from behind. And now in Luke's account of this same story, we know that what she did was she reached out and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. So I imagine that she's probably significantly hunched over. Some portraits or uh, paintings of her actually show her on her hands and knees. as She's kind of easily, more easily making her way through the crowd. And she reaches out and she touches Jesus. I think maybe her face is also partially hidden, either with a veil or a scarf. Because this woman, she does not want to be recognized. This woman has suffered from unnatural bleeding for 12 years. And according to Jewish law, because of this ongoing issue of blood, she was considered unclean. In the book of Leviticus, we're told that people were not to touch her or touch anything that she touched. It was absolutely forbidden for her to touch anyone else. This woman likely lived alone. She was a social outcast. And in contrast to Jairus, this prominent named leader, She's a poor, sick woman who isn't even identified by name. All we know is that she's been suffering for 12 years. She's spent all she has. She's tried every option, and instead of getting better, she feels worse. In fact, we hear that it was under the care of many doctors that she suffered a great deal. This woman, she amazes me. How is it that this person who has gone through this much and has faced this much unsuccess still held out hope when she heard of Jesus? But she thinks to herself with an impressive degree of certainty, if I just touch his clothes, I know I will be healed. She does so and instantly she feels in her body the bleeding stop. Now, obviously, there's something very different about this woman from all the other people that are there and in need of healing. Because based on the disciples' later comments, we know that there were lots of people who touched Jesus. They bumped into him, right? But, but Mark doesn't say that they were healed. There's something different about this woman, and it's her faith. This woman's faith sets her apart. She truly believed that Jesus had the power to heal her. Why else would she take such a risk? Why else would she reach out and touch Jesus? At that time, it was scandalous to think that a woman would touch a man, not to mention an unclean woman touching a rabbi. Now, when Jesus realizes that power has gone out for him, he stops and he asks, who touched him? For me, this is a critical moment in the story. It's like we've had all this momentum and all of a sudden things come to a halt. The pause creates this moment of tension and we find ourselves wondering, what's going to happen? I suspect that many of us, when we're first reading this story, we're inclined to hear in the tone of voice that Jesus uses this tone of, of accusation. But 
if we look at the context, he probably wasn't speaking with any kind of anger or any kind of annoyance in his voice. Rather, he probably said, who touched me in a way that evokes more curiosity than rebuke. It wasn't like, hey, who touched me? But we do have to wonder, why does Jesus stop to ask this question? Why does he want to call this woman out? What does it matter that power went out from him? What's the point of identifying her? Clearly, she doesn't want that. The disciples think this is strange, right? They're like, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? Look at all these people. Are you crazy? It could have been anybody. And Jairus, he's sitting there thinking, who cares? He's distraught. Uh, What do you mean who touched you? Who cares? My daughter's on the verge of death. Forget them. They're healed. Let's go, right? But it's this part of the story where we see the kind of God that we serve. It's at this point that we see that Jesus is more than just a physical healer. He cared about this woman. He cared about that issue of blood, and he wanted to heal her. But he didn't just want to heal her physically. He wanted her to be relieved of the suffering of being isolated and despised. Had he just let this woman disappear into the crowd, how would anyone have known that she had been physically healed? It's not like she was blind and all of a sudden, oh, I can see you, or she was lame and now she can jump up and walk. By drawing public attention to her, Jesus proclaimed in front of the entire community that she was now clean. She wouldn't have to prove it later. She wouldn't have to convince folks of it. Also, by stopping to address this woman, Jesus was taking time to bless her. Jesus says to her, daughter. It's a term of endearment that he doesn't use anywhere else with anyone in scripture. And then he follows up by commending her faith. Come on, whom of us doesn't like it when somebody says something nice about us? Somebody that we respect, especially in front of other people. You know, my mother-in-law happens to be here this morning. So if you have anything nice to say this morning, make sure she's with an earshot later, but only if it's something nice, right? (laughs) What's ironic is that Jesus was probably using this unclean, unnamed woman as an example for Jairus, this named prominent religious leader to follow. In the same way that the woman had faith that Jesus would heal her, Jesus wants Jairus to have that kind of faith that he can heal his daughter, even from death. Don't be afraid. Just believe. That's what Jesus tells him. And that's what he tells everybody there. This type of faith, this type that you see this woman possess, that's the kind of faith I want you to emulate. Each one of us here, we would do well to follow her example also. You know why? Because like her, like this woman, we too are unclean. But instead of being defiled by an issue of blood, we are defiled by our sin our active disobedience that separates us from God. Now, I realize that there are a lot of people who don't think of themselves as being unclean. Most of us determine our worth based on how we compare with everybody else. We figure, hey, we're we're doing pretty good. If we work hard, we take care of our families, we don't outrightly go and rob banks or kill anybody. I mean, we're, we're pretty good overall, right? But God doesn't judge us on a bell curve. 
He measures us against the absolute of perfection, and against that, we all fall short. Pastor Peter explained recently in a sermon that we are entirely unable of touching anyone or anything without causing it harm, right? Because our tendency is to want to conquer and control. Our underlying motivations, if we're truthful, are really self-serving. Consider this example. Have you ever driven using a navigation system? My husband seems to delight in programming where we're going to go in the computer. And he asks it for directions to the location that we're headed. But then he deliberately takes an alternative route than what's suggested. I think he finds pleasure in demonstrating that he knows a better way to get there than the computer. And he loves it when the voice, Siri or whoever, tells him to do something, and then he disregards it. It's like, hey, I've got free will, and I can choose to do whatever I want. And I tease him all the time because he can tell he's really gloating over the fact that he knows more than this inanimate, man-made object. And yet I know that I'm the same way. I take every opportunity I can to look better, you know, show that I know something. I generally want to prove that I know something more than another person, than a computer, but, you know, we all do that. That's part of my sin. That's the stuff that makes me unclean. Now, some of us, we're just all too too well aware that we are unclean. We know it. And we don't avoid God because we don't think we need him. We avoid him because we feel ashamed. We feel dirty because of the websites that we've visited. We feel disgusted because of how much we've consumed. We feel guilty over the number of times that we've lost our temper. All of this sin results in suffering. We feel the effects physically through pain and disease. We feel the effects socially through strained and broken relationships. We feel the effects emotionally through strife and worry, envy and contempt, anger and despair. And we feel the effects spiritually through separation from the one person who truly loves us as we are and is the only one who can give us real peace. The Bible tells us that ultimately the consequences of sin is death. And death is something that none of us can evade. But if we were to go on reading the story today, we would see that Jesus has the power to save us even from death as he shows Jairus by lifting and raising his daughter. Now, in biblical times, it was believed that if you came into contact with anything that was unclean, that you too would become unclean yourself. And so it would seem then that Jesus would have been contaminated by the touch of the bleeding woman or by his contact with Jairus' daughter's corpse, which was also considered unclean. But Jesus brought about instantaneous healing. He was able to receive that impurity, triumph over it, and remain uncontaminated. What Jesus did for this woman and for Jairus' daughter, he came to do for each one of us. He came to heal us. He came to get rid of the sin that defiles us so that we can be clean. And he did this once and for all by taking onto himself in his flesh all the disease that separates us from being close to God. The cancer of selfishness, arrogance, pride, rebellion, 
We read in Isaiah 53, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, not us, the iniquity of us all. Basically, Jesus came to die that we might live. And all the suffering that we deserve, Jesus endured for us. For our sakes, he was crucified, buried, and descended into hell. You might be familiar with the movie Slumdog Millionaire. There's a scene in that movie that helps provide us a picture of this, even though it falls way short in comparison. There's a scene in which this little boy is using an outhouse. And in this case, there's this raised, elevated platform, I mean, significantly high. And there's a hole made in the platform, and there are four walls that surround the hole. And basically, the way that you utilize this is you stand over the hole, your excrement drops down beneath the platform and collects there. Now, his brother,